This series is Redefining Radical is kind of the working title that we're working with at the moment. And I've uh, seen, uh, I believe today's passage, given what's been flooding the media the last few weeks, is actually a little bit timely to look at this. So we're just going to look at the first part of this together, the first nine verses, and uh, we'll just read this through now. So verse one, now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I'm going to get, stop this now. This is rated a little bit PG-13, okay? So if you've got any kids lingering around, um, just parental discretion here, okay? Because you can see the subject matter already. All right, this will get a bit... <laughs> this, this, uh, you know, there is a bit of a... Um, you know, the word sexual shows up a few times even in Scripture. So I'm just giving the heads up there. So um, here we go. But since sexual immorality is occurring... Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to say unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. Wow. Now, when we delegate the, uh, who, who preaches what in this series, the rule of thumb I sort of work with is the hotter the button, the more likely it is that I have to take it. <laughs> just, just, to, um, just to make it comfortable for other preachers. If we want to get our understanding of this, um, just next slide there, mate. We need to understand what's going on here. The first six chapters of 1 Corinthians are Paul responding and unloading with both barrels in some cases, to what he's hearing about the church. It's, you know, I hear this stuff, it's been reported to me, let me deal with some things that I'm aware of in your midst. And after this, chapter 7 onwards, Paul is taking his authoritative apostle's hat off and putting his pastoral one on. You know, verse 1 of this says, now for the matters you wrote about. So this is actually addressing specific pastoral matters that the Corinthian church really want to know answers to or are grappling with in a number of ways. In this section, a specific mindset is being addressed. And it's in talking marks in our Bibles. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Or in the original language, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Touch meaning what we've concluded here in the NIV. Like chapter 6, this is actually another Corinthian saying being addressed. In chapter 6, you've got, I have the right to do anything. You know, um, or food for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God's going to destroy it all. This is another one of the Corinthian sort of statements that, that they seem to be relating to Paul. This is kind of what we, some of us are concluding. There's a group of believers among the Corinthians who have rightly observed that sexual sin is a problem both in their community and, as we learned from the last chapter, in their congregation. 
to their credit, they've been actively looking for a way to address this. And in some of their reasoning, the solution seems to be a life of complete sexual abstinence. Now, on paper, this sounds like a noble, noble idea. I mean, you know, if you can control yourself and not have to go down that path at all, there's so many other pursuits you can devote yourself to. But this was coming from the same pagan belief system that Paul was addressing in the previous chapter. The crazy, immoral side that was going on in the last chapter is, is actually coming from the same place that this complete abstinence is coming from as well. It's two extremes of the same problem. They've got this dualism going on there. It's a pagan thought. The spirit of a person had an afterlife. They didn't understand it the way Christians do. Christians anticipate a bodily resurrection. These guys saw it of some spiritual ambiguous thing. And the body was an evil bit that would have no value, an evil bit that will have no value later. In some cases, this led to a complete loss of restraint. Okay, it's all going to burn. It's all going to be destroyed. It's all going to, God's going to destroy it Also, I'll just live how I please now. It doesn't matter how my body is done. And Paul answers that last chapter with, honor God with your bodies. In other people, they, they instead of going completely losing restraint, they put absolute restraint on it so that you could be so somehow be more pure in spirit by doing so. And we call this an aesthetic sort of uh, way of living. Some in the church went as far as to portray sexual activity as something really dirty to be avoided at all costs in favour of more pious pursuits. You know, whenever you're feeling the urge or the temptation, retreat, pray, commit time to piety. Now, I've known men who have battled with their orientation and their sexual identity and for them this has been a outlet or a way to actually explore where they are at it's not like they're overnight suddenly straight but they go you know what abstinence while i sort myself out seems to be the smartest way to go it's a way of life that to a degree seems to resonate with paul because for reasons not fully known, even now, he's navigating the single life himself. Some say he was married, others say he wasn't. I personally believe he was, but it's, it's like, where did Adam get his, neighbor, his belly button from? It doesn't, it doesn't matter in the scheme of things. He knows that there are both advantages and disadvantages to that social position of, of this abstinence position. But this stops getting noble when it promotes this way of thinking among married couples. Telling married couples, even, in, if you, even if you're married, that is completely off the agenda. That's part of the way it needs to be because of the problem we have in society. The world around them was a deeply immoral environment. And what is on the table here, what is being thought out here, actually has the potential to do more harm than good. In fact... If one party was thinking of complete abstinence and the other party was on paper going, yeah, I'm kind of with you, but secretly they weren't, well, chapter 6 comes into play instead for them. So he writes here that sexual behaviour between married couples should be occurring because the marriage bed is the only safe place for this to be taking place. It's part of the marriage deal that this sort of activity is, is involved. And Paul advises married couples 
to not go down the path of complete abstinence. Later in the chapter, he will write that being married and being sexual in that marriage is in no way a sinful thing. Now, Paul acknowledges here that there are times in married life where this is not on the table. In the scriptures, it says here, taking time for retreat of spiritual refocusing seems to be a real option for the Corinthian church. And Paul thinks that's okay for a time. And I've never, ever heard of anyone doing that today. Oh, we're just going to spiritually retreat for a while. In our mar- I've never heard of that. You know, like interacting with married couples over many years, that's never been a thing. But there are plenty of legitimate reasons where no means no for a season. Health reasons, emotional reasons, functional reasons, fatigue, kids, life, stress, time. All of it plays a factor, right? But it is important that in an immoral world, spouses still look out for each other in this area of their marriages. Now this does not, and I cannot state this enough, this does not mean that saying no on any given night is wrong. And forcing the issue is nothing short of ungodly abuse. Recently we've heard stories of blatant abuse and this verse and others by men in the church. In the last few weeks, ABC ran a, a report that kind of got you know, really heavily ripped into by a lot of Christian leaders and that scares me. Julia Baird put a thing about domestic violence taking place in, with nominal Christian men, people who, men who avoid discipleship, men who go to church once or twice a year. This article comes up. Submit to your husbands, women told to endure domestic violence in the name of God. Ephesians 5.22, a man with no discipleship go on wives, submit to your husbands or else. And the church turning a blind eye to it, going, yeah, well, it does say that. This has actually been a thing in recent times and Andrew Bolt jumped on the, on the, on the media going, oh, <laughs> it's just leftist media just trying to attack the church. He's an atheist and we've made him our poster child. This is actually a real problem and, and, and the church kind of needs to look at it and go, you know what, if, if that's in there, how do we teach it properly? What's the other half of that? Men, discipled men, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and laid his, down for her, laid his life down for her. When we take things in isolation, we can abuse it. And it's really, oh, that's not Old Testament, that's New Testament being abused. That's a real problem. Last Sunday on 60 Minutes, a pastor of an independent church gets locked up for the rape of his wife, believing what we've read here in chapter 7 to be applied in the extreme way. The couple's son, pictured up here, a pastor himself, believed his dad was unjustly put away. And he's a pastor in Sydney. What stuck out to me with this one is, if it wasn't enough, there was this bit that stood out. It was the reporter describing this defensive pastor as radical. If Christianity is, as I believe it is, a radical expression of God's kingdom, then this is radical gone wrong. I wish these were just extremist views in isolation. 
But I can tell you as a teenager growing up amongst other guys and my peers, there was a bit of chatter. There was a time where we were looking forward to being married. Where the undefiled marriage bed of the New Testament meant nothing was taboo. Where this verse said our wives are not allowed to say no and there was no pastoral correction take place at all in that. Fortunately, we've worked out that that's not the case. We've learned how to not be abusive men. But I do wish there was some better discipleship spoken into the life of the church in this regard 20 years ago. The real story, as I read this, is that in an immoral world, my marriage is designed by God to be the place of safest intimacy. And while these extreme views suggest my spouse is my plaything to meet my needs, while this guy might think that, Paul writes and clearly states that the radical opposite is in place. I am the property of my spouse. And willingly so. I belong to her in the same way we belong to each other. Paul writes that being single and having the self-control to keep yourself pure in that state is truly a gift. If that's your current path, the Lord is gifting you the ability to lift that out. Verse 7 tells us we're all gifted from the Lord. And in the context of this passage, I believe we can conclude that marriage is God's gift also. So this challenges me personally to be faithful and thankful with what I've been gifted with when it comes to the marriage relationship that I have. And I do, babe. Well, keep on reading there. Verse 10. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is not a believer and, she is willing to live with, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Wow. Paul wearing a really full-on pastoral hat here. Dealing with things that hadn't really been written much on and much of the New Testament isn't written yet. The early part of that's pretty straightforward. We've gone down that path and talked about that together before. Paul is very aware that Jesus has already spoken publicly about this matter. If anything, Matthew's Gospel has pretty much already been written by this stage believed by most guys anyway. Marriage matters deeply. 
There is something truly special about its expression and it helps us understand God's relationship and covenant commitment to us. The church is sometimes described as a bride in Scripture. The one who was told to remain alert, sober and faithful for an imminently returning groom that is Christ. Our godly marriages are yet another way of demonstrating the radical way of the kingdom. If we have marriage right, we can show part of the kingdom by doing that. And it says here that Paul, from Paul that the believers really should not be the initiators of divorce, but sometimes there are reasons where this is the only way. Churches fostering abuse will shame you into sticking out, but Christ acknowledged abuses of the intimacy of the home as one very valid reason for a separation to take place. Paul provides another here. Not to mess with what Jesus taught, not to undo that, but to speak pastorally into specific issues that Jesus' immediate audience was unlikely to have faced. It is very likely that a society as pagan as Corinth was going to find following Jesus to be a controversial thing. Could you imagine a a man coming home one day, he's been hard at work all day, probably stopped by his crazy pagan temple on the way through for worship, attended some pagan feast, did something like that, hung out with his trade guild and all that sort of stuff and comes home and, hi honey, I'm home. And she comes up, hugs. It's like that um, Case of Christ movie. You'll never believe what happened. I gave my life to Jesus today. I became a Christian. In that setting, that would have been a really jarring thing. Today we kind of, you know, we, we're, we're not as connected to religion in that sort of way so much. So, but in that setting... They were poles apart. They were really significantly different movements. You can imagine how jarring that would have been for a man to have actually encountered that. Or for a woman to come home and find her husband has done that. The, it was chalk and cheese. The, the government looked down at Christians going, we're watching you carefully. That time comes around where we all say, Caesar is Lord, what are you going to say? No, Jesus is Lord, we can't say that no more. The heat's going to come down on that house real fast. Paul acknowledges that there's probably some spouses that probably don't want to go for that ride. And they're going to move on. They're going to go, but if they're going to stick around, Paul goes, enjoy it. Paul does say here that in, to be free if the unbelieving spouse moves on. Because God wants us to be in peace. Peace in Paul's thinking often comes across as harmony between man and God and man with each other. And Paul is saying here that even if you've been rejected this way, if an unbelieving spouse walks away, even if society frowns on you, you can still expect to be in harmony with God and his community as you go through that tough time. It's not carte blanche to offload the unbeliever. Oh, you don't believe, you're out of here. That can't happen. In fact, Paul says there could be something special in that. Being sanctified and holy in this passage doesn't mean saved. It means touchable. 
The Mosaic law taught that unbelievers were unclean. Interacting with Gentiles in Israel, like the fish traders in Galilee did, this meant an art degree of uncleanness. There was ceremonial washing and stuff like that taking place, particularly for worship. Jews marrying Gentiles was forbidden because they were unclean. You can't marry that lot. But not so much in the New Testament, in the New Covenant here. Your unsaved spouse is not unclean. Neither are your children, as Paul says here. They are someone with whom you can enjoy a very fruitful marriage with if they respect your faith and give you space to let that part of you flourish. And your kids will be in that place too, that touchable place, that place where you can reach out to them and where God can reach into that family. So Paul says at the end of this, don't end it. Who knows what might, they might actually come to faith in all this. We'll move on to the rest of the chapter. This, there's a lot of repetitive ground here, but we'll just read it out and I'll finish with a couple of quick thoughts here today. So we'll pick up the verse from verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave, even when called to faith in the Lord, is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who is by the Lord's mercy trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I, believe, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. If you do marry, you have not sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as, as they do not. Those who mourn as if they do... Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if, they, if, if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if it not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. How can he please his wife? And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married, but the man who has settled the matter in his own mind who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will and who has made up his own mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives. 
But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Wow. Some of that sort of covers a bit of ground about marriage already. It's not a bad thing if you get married. I want to capture a couple of basic thoughts from that large, large passage you just read that, we'll, that we can take out of today. Some of that was very pertinent to where the people are at in their space. But I'm going to pull out two thoughts here. First, it may be the case that Corinth is dealing with some if-onlys. If only. Who's ever said that in their life? If only. If only my status and position in life was different. If things were different, I'd be so much more effective. I'd be so much happier. I'd be so much this. I'd be so much that. I'd be so much more on fire for God. Whatever. Right now, I don't think I bring much to God's table as I currently am. In Corinth's perspective, if only I wasn't a slave, I'd have freedom and I could do all these things. This slavery thing he has to do is, is, not, is more of a... It's very complex to actually think here. It's not talking about torture here. It's about the household stuff. If only I wasn't circumcised. If only I was. If I only had more cash. If I only had more time. If only I was married. If only I was single. If only I could quit my real job and be a pastor. That's my 20-year-old self coming out there. (laughs) If only, if only, if only. When we get so enamored with a status that for whatever reason eludes us, we can stop being effective for Christ in the place we are now. But I'm not at this place, so I can't be effective. What about what you are now and what you bring to the table? Paul is pointing out here that our lives as we know them presently have value to the kingdom now. Who you are right now has kingdom value. Who you are right now brings, can bring glory to God. Who you are right now can extend the kingdom. Who you are right now can be a witness for the Lord. Who you are right now can be deeply effective in all that you do. Who you are right now has value. As our family status is right now, in the employment position we hold right now, In the social setting we operate in this present time, we have Christ. And because of this fact, we have great things to bring to that setting. If there's opportunity to better yourself, grab it. Well, he says, if you can be free, not a slave, take it. But wherever you find yourself, there's an old proverb, bloom wherever you're planted. first one get rid of the if onlys and think about what you bring now what kingdom demonstration what kingdom announcement what kingdom living can you bring to the table now the other one is this Corinth may be navigating right now how to plan out their lives but also keep eternity in their sights at the same time 
We've heard about a bit of that in the Sermon on the Mount. Having an eye on the kingdom at the same time as living life now. Paul makes clear reminders here about just how temporal this world really is and how short this time we live really is in relation to eternity. We're told here to consider all the affairs that the world concerns itself with. Wedding plans and arrangements. Back then it was quite involved. There was a lot of arranged marriaging and stuff like that. All that, that was all really involved stuff. We talked about the amassing of possessions. There's the subjective idea of happiness that the non-believing world consider their right to have. There's the status of life that everyone in Corinth competed for. There's the wealth, the fame, the fortune. There's that personal drive to one day be a patron, not a client. All sorts of stuff like that going on. And Paul says, if you pursue all these things, all these things can divide our hearts and they can cause us to lose sight of eternity by focusing everything on the here and now. We can get so engrossed on the present and on what we see and the temporal nature of things that we end up becoming church people who don't give the eternal kingdom a moment's thought. And even our weekly expression of worship like it is here can be limited to how we see things temporarily rather than what we're doing to affect eternity as a result. And one day our righteous judge will be face to face with us and will ask us to give an account. Paul talks about being responsible to the Lord for all the things we have. We've got the if onlys and we've got the eye on eternity and how not to live divided hearts as a result. I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to take a moment just as we reflect and let the Spirit speak in all that because that's loaded. I just wonder if we could bow our heads for one moment and actually just, I want to give the Spirit space to speak in all this.